0: So this is the time in our gathering when we do the hard work of active listening to the preaching of God's word. We are a distracted people living in a distracted world. And our hope is not merely to hear words today, but to listen so that our minds and our hearts and our lives are transformed Today's passage that you just heard read in Mark 13 is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. And in fact, it even goes on for several more um, verses. But before we get into um, this text today, I want you to know as we approach this chapter that this is one of the most difficult chapters in the book of Mark. In fact, it's actually one of the more difficult chapters in all of the Bible, even for scholars. And so if you uh, read this passage earlier this week in preparation for today's message and thought, I have no idea what's going on, you're in good company. Um, welcome to the club. <clears throat> At times this week, I was downright confused. I mean, in fact, I went back and forth uh, late nights, reading commentaries, and I really had to wrestle with the text And as I read the different authors, literally none of them even agreed with each other. And so one guy said, whatever view you take is by definition a a minority view because you're the only one who holds it. Um, But what I want to tell us is that difficult passages of Scripture should not alarm us. What you need to know is that there are things in the Bible that are crystal clear. And at Seven Mile Road, we would call those the closed-hand doctrines of our faith. So for example... Jesus was literally, physically, and bodily raised from the dead. That's a, the, the teaching in the Bible is really clear about that. Um, salvation is found in Christ alone, through faith alone, and by grace alone. Yes and amen. That is absolutely and abundantly clear in Scripture. It's closed. It's not up for debate around here. In fact, it's so central to our faith that without those central truths, our faith would just kind of crumble and break down. Now, there are other things in the Bible that are more open-handed, and there's actually a lot of room to disagree. And so, in fact, in today's passage in Mark, he's going to tell us about the end of two things. One is about the end of the temple in Jerusalem, and the other is about the end of all things, like the end of time, the capital E, capital N, capital D, end. And what makes this passage so difficult is trying to figure out, when is he just talking about the end of the temple? When is he talking about the end? And it gets more complicated because sometimes he's kind of talking about both at the same time. That makes it very tough. And so lots of people who genuinely love Jesus disagree on exactly how and when Jesus will come back. But here's the beautiful truth. No matter what position you take, no matter what, uh, uh, how you read the scriptures on that, what everyone agrees on is this. Christ has died Christ has risen and Christ will come again. That is the core. That is the most important thing. That is a close handed doctrine. The how and the when and all of how the details all play out, we hold with an open hand here at Seven Mile Road. So, that being said, we should approach difficult passages like these in the scriptures with great humility. And at the same time, we're not going to shy away from them. We're not going to just uh, not preach on them or not talk about them because they're difficult. We can really be tenacious and dig in to the word this morning. So now let's, uh, let's pray and ask that God would give us that kind of humble, humble tenacity to go into the scriptures today. And so, Father, thank you that you have given us your word and that it is alive and it's active and it's true. And there is a word for us here today in these scriptures and I pray as we uh, uh, approach them that you would give us open hearts and open minds to hear from you, to receive from you. God, where there's sin in our life, may it be confronted um, by these warnings of Jesus today, where, there, where we need to cling more closely to you. God, let us do that um, this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, you need no invitation, but we ask, we beg that you would bring this text alive to us today, where we are here in this room. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm going to begin with a couple of questions. If you had known the end to this year's Super Bowl, would you have watched the game? I thought Trevor would. He's a Bills fan. He loved every minute of it. And I know for some of you, it's too soon to talk, okay? But listen, talking about it can be therapeutic, all right? Of course, Eagles fans are in Philly right now watching it on repeat. Some of you, knowing the end, wouldn't have watched it in the first place. You'd have done something else with your time. And for sure, no Patriots fan is playing that game on repeat to see the, uh, the horror and relive the pain. But now let me ask you another question. If you had known the end to last year's Super Bowl, would you have watched the game? And of course you would. You'd want to see the miracle, the comeback to define all comebacks, You'd want to watch that Edelman catch. Like, I still want to keep seeing. how did it not fall on the ground? The multiple two-point conversions, that look in Brady's eye when you knew, oh, they're going to do this. You'd want to see that historic overtime victory. But knowing how it ends, you would watch the game with a different perspective, right? You'd watch the first three quarters going, what is going on? And you'd know that it's okay that we're down 28 to 3. Because you'd know in the fourth quarter, the tide would turn. All the momentum would shift. And you'd know that in the end, it all works out. You see, knowing the end shapes how you experience the present, doesn't it? Our passage today gives us that perspective. and our passage today, Jesus gives us a glimpse of the end so that it would shape how we go through the present. Now, he doesn't give us a 4K HD picture of the end. There's some places where it's a little bit fuzzy. He doesn't give us that full picture so that we would know every detail so we can make a comprehensive chart and diagram about the end of all things. He's also not giving us cryptic details to send us on some obsessive quest to try to break the code and know exactly when he's coming. No. Our passage today shows that Jesus is far more interested in how we live as faithful disciples today, not drowning in endless speculation about the future. And so as we jump into this text this morning, in the end, we are called to see this, that we can endure through trials, that we need to engage on mission, and we need to expect his coming. And what we believe about the end will shape how it is that we endure through trials. What we believe about the end will shape how it is that we engage in mission to the work that God has called us to. And what we believe about the end will shape our hopeful expectation about his coming. So let's jump into verse 1 as we go in Mark. He says this And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Now, if you've been tracking one of us, you remember that we are in the final week of Jesus' life. It's the most important week and the most important, of the most important person who has ever lived. And on Sunday of this week, he enters into Jerusalem and he's hailed and he's praised as the Messiah King by a crowd who wants him to be a king according to their agenda. But we find out that that sentiment quickly goes away. His approval ratings drop when they find out that Jesus doesn't march to their beat. Jesus marches to the beat of his own. And then on Monday, he walks into the temple and he clears it out because the temple had become a corrupt marketplace instead of a place of prayer. On Tuesday morning, on the way back into the city, the disciples see the withered fig tree that Jesus had cursed the day before. And it was a dramatic parable showing them the rottenness of this tree resembles the rottenness of the temple. He condemned the temple for its outward religiosity and its inward corruption. And then they arrive back at the temple on Tuesday morning, and his authority is questioned by all the religious elite. He fields question after question, designed to trap him so that he's either arrested by the authorities or lynched by a mob. And as the, day, as the long day comes to a close, we see that Jesus leaves the temple for the last time. And as they're walking out, one of the disciples said, Jesus, isn't the temple beautiful? I mean, the architecture and the craftsmanship are unparalleled. And if you had been there, you would have agreed. The disciple was right. The temple was impressive. You see, the temple was Israel's crown jewel. In fact, one historian of the Times said it wasn't so much that Jerusalem had a temple, but that the temple had Jerusalem. If you had been there, you would have said the same exact thing. It's like standing today in front of the Taj Mahal. It's massive. It's beautiful, ornate. It's like going to the Great Wall of China. It's like standing before the Egyptian pyramids, or walking into Fenway. The temple was a magnificent human accomplishment. See, when Herod the Great came to power, he wanted to make a name for himself. And so he started building up the city of Jerusalem with all these massive building projects. And rebuilding and expanding the temple was his magnum opus. The marble white stones were brilliant. And when the light from the rising sun would hit from the east would shine in the temple, it glittered like gold. Kind of like when we have a snowstorm and then the sun comes up and it looks like there's gold all over the treetops. Some of the stones that uh, Josephus tells us were 40 to 60 feet long, weighing thousands of tons. The temple complex itself was as big as 12 football fields. The sanctuary in the center rose to a height of 50 meters The columns on the portico coming into the temple were so big, it took three grown men hand to hand to even encircle the column. No detail was spared. Parts of the temple were laden with gold, and there were ornate wood coverings all around. There's not a single temple in the ancient world that rivaled this temple. See, Herod Herod wanted to expand it and make it become a political hub and an economic hub. He wanted it to be so opulent and massive that when people saw the temple, they would praise him and see Herod's glory. See, the temple was supposed to be a place where you came in and marveled at God. Herod had gone far beyond the the Bible's description of what the temple should be like. Look at verse 2. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In the shadow of the temple, towering over them as they walked away, Jesus said, yeah, this is going to become a heap of ruins. When it comes crashing down, not one stone will be left on top of another. Can you imagine the disciples' reaction Jesus' response must have shattered them. Like a system of cells that has become cancerous, Jesus is saying the temple is malignant and it needs to be removed. Look at verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So what happens is they leave the temple, they walk about a half a mile out of the city to the Mount of Olives, which rises about 300 feet above the elevation of Jerusalem. So from that place, they have this like panoramic view of the city of Jerusalem and the temple. I bet it was a quiet walk, that half mile. And finally, as they get to a resting place, one of the disciples is like, hey, about that bomb you dropped back there with the temple. Can you let us know when that's going to happen? Can you let us know how things are going to play out? Jesus, when will these things be? And what will be the sign for us to know it's about to go down? Now, for sure, Jesus just told them the temple is going to be destroyed. And so their question is about the temple and when that's going to happen. But you see, you have to understand for disciples, for Jews, the temple is not some accessory to their faith. It's not some other thing. It's absolutely central to their faith. You see, the temple is where they go to have their sins atoned and paid for. It's what it's what enables them to have a relationship with God. So when they hear the temple is coming down, it impacts them in a deep and profound way. And they want to know: well, when is this going to be and how? And at the same time, when they hear about the destruction of the temple, They have this gut feeling that tells them the end must be coming. If God is taking this off the table, something big must be coming. In fact, if you read over in Matthew's gospel in chapter 24, which is his parallel to this chapter, it says this. Their question is is phrased this way. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the completion of the age? So what Mark leaves kind of vague, Matthew brings to the forefront that the disciples are kind of wondering, does this have implications on the capital E-N-D of all time? And see, they would have associated the destruction of the temple with coming judgment. And you might go, well, why? Why would they make that connection? You see, in Israel's history, that's exactly what happened. When the temple was first built in 1 Kings, he told Solomon, as long as you obey, as long as you hold true and genuine worship to me, you'll have this thing forever. But he said, if you abandon me, this thing is going to come down in a heap of ruins. And if you look at Israel's history, that's exactly what happened. When they abandoned God, it came crashing down about 600 years before when Babylon came in and blew through the city and destroyed it. Now, King Cyrus comes to the throne and they get uh, freed up and they go back to the city and they rebuild the temple. But they know there is an intimate connection between judgment and the temple. The people of God had abandoned him and eventually he gave them the desires of their heart. They didn't want God to be their God and so he let them try life without without him. What they found is not only did they become spiritually vanquished, but they became physically vanquished as well. They're captured and deported, and their city was destroyed. So now as we keep moving through the chapter, Jesus is going to talk about the destruction of the temple, from verses five all the way through 31. Everything in this section, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. One preacher gave a really helpful analogy about how we view prophecy. He said this: "Prophetic literature is like a mountain range. When you climb the mountain, you know, when you approach the mountain, it's so massive, it's really the only thing you can see because it's blocking out your view of everything else. But as you get to the top of that mountain and you crest the ridge, you see there's actually a whole vista of other mountaintops in the distance. And so, from the, uh, once you climb the first mountain, you're able to kind of see the rest of the mountains in the distance. While this passage is primarily about the destruction of the temple, when we get to the top, we're going to see that it's even a preview and a glimpse of something bigger that's coming as well. In this passage, we're going to find out that the destruction of the temple is actually a preview of the final coming of Jesus and judgment. So what we learn from today actually applies to us as we're awaiting the end as well. And so as we look at the disciples and the way that they hear Jesus and the way that they respond, that's going to be a lesson for us to know how do we live today in light of the fact that Jesus is coming again. And we know from history that the temple will be destroyed in AD 70, and we're going to talk a whole lot more about that in the uh, verses ahead. Okay, so the disciples asked Jesus for more information. Jesus drops the, the bomb that the, the, the temple is going to be destroyed. The disciples have asked him for more information. Let's see how Jesus responds in verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one lead you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation, verse 8, will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. So, right here, Jesus lays out a series of warnings and exhortations about what they can expect to come up in the weeks and the months and the years leading up to this destruction of the temple. But if you notice here, he's also telling them to be patient. Because these are just the beginnings of the birth pains. These just let you know that labor has started, but it's not yet time for action. And so he tells them, in the midst, as you're waiting, do not be led astray. Others are going to come along between now and that time, claiming to be the Messiah. In the midst of upheaval and chaos, some will try to seize that opportunity to deceive and gain a following. And if you look at the pages of history between 8030 and 8070, that's exactly what you see happening. And he tells them, you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars, but don't be alarmed. Political tensions are going to rise, world powers are going to clash, there's going to be natural disasters and earthquakes and famines. Guess what? Go read the pages of history, and guess what happened? Everything that Jesus said, and he's telling them, be patient. Don't run for the hills just yet. Stay calm. Endure. He said, I'm telling you this ahead of time so you can endure through the hardships. This is just the pre-labor. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I know anything about the pain of giving birth. Okay? Let's get that out on the table. But what I do know is that you don't go to the hospital at the first hint of a contraction. I remember when Andy was first pregnant, first contract. I was like, Do we need to go? And she was like, No, no, no. We still got some time. These first hints of labor can come weeks leading up to active labor. That's what Jesus is saying is going on. There's there's gonna be pain, yes, there's going to be contractions, but they're just the signal that it's near, not that it's time to go to the hospital. Because these contractions are going to intensify, they will get more regular. But for now, do not be alarmed. See, the purpose of all these warnings is not to lure the disciples into endless speculation about what could be. This is to anchor them to Jesus, to be watchful and faithful in the present. So he's saying, when you see these things, don't freak out. Be patient. Be alert. Yes. Be on guard. Absolutely. But don't be armed. Be watchful and faithful. But Jesus says there's more that's coming. Look at verse nine. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you're going to say, but whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father to his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's intensifying, isn't it? The disciples here receive a sobering warning. It's matter of fact. They have their come to Jesus meeting right here. Jesus plainly tells them, You will be persecuted. Not only will tensions arise around you, but it's going to get much harder for you. Be on your guard. You're going to be betrayed by friends and family. This persecution is going to impact even the most intimate of relationships. And Jesus tells them eventually they're going to be handed over to councils. They're going to go on trial before kings and governors. They're going to be beaten and even some of you will be killed it's going to feel like the whole world hates you. But did you notice their suffering and their persecution will not be purposeless. It will provide an opportunity for the gospel to go forth. You see, if you look at the early church history in the pages of the book of Acts, their persecution actually serves to further the gospel, not hinder it. See, they thought if they if they tightened in on these early disciples, if they persecuted them, that they would keep their mouths shut. But it actually served the opposite purpose. We find in early church history and in the book of Acts that the persecution just proliferated the spreading and the furthering of the gospel. So they don't need to be anxious about what they'll say when they're under persecution because Jesus says the Holy Spirit will be with you. God himself will be with you and give you the words that you need to say And the pages of history tell us that that's exactly what happened. Despite persecution, nothing stopped the relentless advance of the gospel. In the book of Acts, we see a detailed uh, account of the early expansion and growth of God's kingdom as church after church after church is planted. And you know what happened when the disciples went on trial? It says that the persecutors even marveled. At how these uneducated fishermen spoke with such resolve, such clarity, and such passion, because the Holy Spirit showed up and gave them the words that they needed to say. And as they were persecuted, the gospel spread and multiplied. And the writer of, of uh, Acts says that uh, the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being and say save, uh, being saved, like a mother in labor the birth pains validate her as a mother. It speaks to the coming joy of new birth and new life. See, rather than impeding life, the birth pains actually serve to usher in life. And that's what Jesus is telling his disciples. He's not giving them an exact date, but he is giving them a glimpse of the end so that they would, uh, it would shape how they endure through the trials. He's calling them to faithful endurance to the end. He's telling them, hold the line. Stay true, stay firm all the way to the end. Now let's look at verse 14. When you see, verse 14, the abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, we're going to stop right there. Everything before has been about these birth pains. Now Jesus is going to tell them when they know that the time has come. Jesus is going to give them a sign when they know it's time to head for the hills. When the, temple, when the end of the temple is finally at hand. He says, you'll know it's time when you see the abomination of desolation. And then he says, let the reader understand. Now I had to laugh at Mark this week when I read that. Because I was like, well, this reader doesn't understand. <laughs> so what am I supposed to do? If that's you, you're in good company. Now, when we read those words, we don't immediately know exactly, we may not uh, immediately know exactly what Mark is talking about. But Jesus is using really familiar language from the book of Daniel that would have been familiar to the early disciples. You see, back in Daniel's day, he prophesied about um, uh, about a time in the future when the temple would be desecrated, which means to be made unholy. And in fact, that prophecy was fulfilled in 168 B.C. See, Daniel's writing during the Babylonian exile about 400 years before that time. And he says, there's gonna come a day when the temple is rebuilt and then someone's gonna come in and make it unholy. And that's exactly what happened in 168 B.C., Um, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Syrian general, he stormed into the temple, built a statue of Zeus, and started sacrificing pigs on the altar. Now that sounds like good news to us because we love bacon, but to a Jew, you don't touch a pig, you don't eat a pig, and you certainly don't let a pig inside of the temple, let alone on the altar. Needless to say, in 168 B.C., Antiochus desecrated the temple. The disciples would have known about that event. See, this would have been like 9-11 for them. See, right away, when I said those words, 9-11, what happened to you? I don't even have to explain myself. You know exactly what I'm talking about. All the memories, all the emotion, immediately with two words comes flooding back into your mind. You know exactly where you were on that day. And so for them, when he says, hey guys, abomination of desolation, they're like, oh yeah, we remember that. It's seared into their history. They feel those words. So when Jesus says that, everyone knows what he's talking about. And he says something like that is coming again. And when something that epic happens, you will know it's time to go. But Jesus says this time it's going to be even worse than the last. Which they're going, geez, that was really bad. Like imagine something worse than 9/ 11, right? He's saying, it's going to be even worse than that. And so when you see someone storm into Jerusalem heading into the temple, it's time to run." Now look what he says in verse 15: "Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out, and let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it doesn't happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead you astray, if possible, even the elect. But be on guard. I've told you these things all beforehand. See, before he said, be patient, be on guard, but don't be alarmed, right? He said, wait it out, trial, persecution, it's all going to come. Stay firm to the end. Now he says, when the desecration happens, run. He uses language that suggests urgency and expediency, right? He's like, if you're on the top of your roof, don't go down into the house to gather your things. Climb down on that outside ladder and run. If you're in the field working, it's time to go. No time to go back and get your cloak. And for those women who are pregnant or nursing, it's gonna be tough to run, but you have to. Pray it doesn't happen in winter when all the ravines are filled and flooded and it's hard to cross. The terror that's coming will be such that you cannot imagine like something you've never seen before. And if you go back and read the pages of history, it tells us that in A.D. 70, the Roman general Titus, who would later become a Caesar, entered Jerusalem and started terrorizing the city. People were ripped out of their homes and murdered in the streets. Soldiers began to plunder the city and they set it on fire. In fact, it had been Titus's plan to keep the temple intact because he wanted to build a Roman pantheon and thereby desecrate the temple. But the war path and the fires caught up to him, and eventually the temple came crashing down. Over a million Jews lost their lives in the siege of Jerusalem. Josephus, who was a, a Jewish writer, historian at the time, said, it was so bad Jerusalem was so completely leveled as to leave future visitors to the city, no ground for believing that it had ever been inhabited. See, as bad as it was, with all that destruction, these verses tell us that that God even cut it short, that he was merciful, cut short the days of the attack so that even some would be spared. And Jesus warns them again, in the aftermath of this devastation, devastation, people will come up trying to lead you astray. And so he says, run, be on guard. I've given you a glimpse into the end so that you can endure. Now look with me at verse 24. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Let's stop right there. Notice, as Jesus is kind of continuing his answer, he says, in those days after that tribulation, if you think about it, what is he talking about? Well, the days he just talked about in the tribulation that he just talked about. That's how we know he's still talking about the destruction of the temple. And now Jesus starts to borrow all of this poetic language. Every little phrase that I just read to you, you can find in the prophetic literature that Jesus would have been so familiar with. And so he's pulling all of this poetic language that has really powerful imagery. And he says, it'll be like the sun will be darkened and the moon will be blacked out. It'll seem like the stars have just fallen from heaven. All of that expresses darkness, doesn't it? I mean, when the sun is gone, The moon is gone, and the stars are gone. What light can there be? He's saying, the light of the temple has been extinguished. Judgment has fallen, and it seems like all hell is breaking loose, and all that remains is darkness. And so it begs the question, what will the people do without the temple? What will the people do without access to God? How will their sins ever be atoned for? How will their sins ever be paid? Will there ever be light again? Look what it says in verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Did you see that shift there? It's a seismic shift. The focus of gloom turns to hope. So where will the light come from when the sun and the moon and the stars are unable to light up the world? If hell has broken loose, how will heaven ever break in? Jesus says, the answer is me. It's the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. When all competing lights have been extinguished, When all the light pollution is finally put out, in the deepest of darkness, the brightest of lights shines bright and clear. This passage speaks to the vindication and the glory of Jesus Christ. It's an allusion to Daniel chapter seven when it says that the son of man ascends into heaven in great victory and he's vindicated and he's given all the honor and all the glory and all the power that was due to him. See, in the darkness of the temple ruins, The light of Jesus shines bright. All of his words are shown to be true. His life, his death, his resurrection are seen truly for what they are. So what do you do when the temple is gone? When the temple is nothing more than a heap and a pile of ruins? See, Jesus said that he would destroy the temple and that in three days he would rebuild it again. What he didn't mean was that he was going to build up Herod's old temple again. He was pointing to himself, the true and greater temple. You see, the day that Jesus died, he hung on the cross. And the Bible says the earth went dark. The ground quaked. And it felt like hell was breaking loose. Judgment came down on the true temple. And he was made into a pile of ruins. But on the third day, when Jesus rose from the grave, he rebuilt the temple See, hell fell on him so that heaven could break in to you and me. Jesus was brought to ruin so that we could be brought to glory. See, in the old days, if you wanted to experience the presence of God, you had to go to the temple. Now, to experience the presence of God, Jesus, the true temple, he comes to you. See, in the old days, if you wanted atonement for sin and forgiveness and reconciliation with God, you had to pay the sacrifice yourself. You had to make the trek to the temple. You had to go to the priest to get right with God. Now, Jesus, the true temple, he comes to you. He pays the price for your sins. He looks you in the face and says, I love you and I forgive you. And he unites you with God. See, the reason we don't go to the temple anymore, and it's not because it's, it's in a pile of ruins. It's because the true temple has come to us. And that's the good news of the gospel, that the Son of Man comes in victory and power and glory, and he defeats the, the darkest of nights. And then he starts doing the work of gathering his elect from the four corners of the earth, from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Now, Jesus is going to finish out his answer to the question in verses 28 through 31. And he says, listen, when you see these things take place, you'll know the end of the temple is near. In fact, he's looking at the disciples, he says, this generation, the one that's alive right now, you're gonna see all of this play out in your lifetime. And true to his word, the temple was destroyed 40 years later within the lifetime of that generation. And so what's the point of this really long 31 verses of scripture that we've just walked through? It's this, endure through to the end. Trials will come, it will be hard, but Jesus is your light. Jesus is your hope. And if you are united to him, hell has fallen on him so that heaven could be offered to you. And because of that, you can endure even the darkest of nights. You can endure any kind of trial. Jesus said, I told you this ahead of time so that you may endure. Now we've just got a few more verses at the end to wrap this up. Look with me at verse 32. Concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. So he says, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey And he leaves his home, and he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. So therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. See, there's a shift in language. See, Jesus has been talking about what happens in those days, in those days. But now Jesus says, that day and that hour. See, that's very specific biblical language to speak about the final judgment. All throughout the Bible, the final day of judgment when Christ returns, when it's really the end, the capital E end, it's always referred to as that day. So Jesus has just been talking about the destruction of the temple, and now he answers that gut feeling that the disciples had that that might also include implications for the end. And then Jesus finishes at the end of this long passage and says, but on that day, that hour, no one will know. He wants to be very clear, very direct about the timing of that final day. He says, drum roll please, no one knows. Not the angels, not even the Son of God. Only the Father knows, period, full stop. There's no secret code to break. There's no decoder rings. There's nothing hidden between the lines. He says, no one will know that hour. So what do we do? Well, we've already said we endure through the trials. This section talks about engaging in mission with an expectancy of his coming. He gives us this analogy of this man leaving on a journey and putting his household in charge with his workers. And he's given them jobs and he's given them assignments. And he's saying, pay attention, stay awake. You're not going to know when I'm coming back. And while you wait for the boss man to get back, stay awake. Do the work that I've called you to do. And so in Scripture, we see what that work really is. For believers, it's the work of the great commandment and the great commission. We're to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. That's our primary job description as believers. Love God. Love Him. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And we're to go about making the work, doing the work of making disciples. See, if we loved our neighbor, we would make disciples. We would tell them about the love that we have found. Just like Jesus is the light of the world, we go out to be lights like him, made in the image of God to be lights to a dark world. We're to tell our family and our friends about the love and the hope that we have found in Jesus Christ. Not in some annoying, overbearing kind of way, This isn't a license to go be jerks and Bible beaters, okay? But in love, we tell about the hope and the love that we have found. He doesn't expect perfection, just faithful diligence to love God and to love others. And then he says, stay awake. Did you notice it? It was like six, seven times in this passage. Stay awake. This means we're to expect his coming. Be diligent. Think it can come at any moment. We're so prone to drifting away, to get off focus, to get distracted or detached. And so he's saying, don't spiritually fall asleep. Expect his coming. Long for it. Make it your grounding anchor of hope. Jesus has told us how it all ends. So let's let that shape how we endure through the trial, engage on mission, and expect his return. Let me pray.